Welcome to The Private Project. Welcome back, everyone. The following is an interview with Anna Alba, the owner of Alba Art Conservation, LLC. Her business specializes in the conservation and analysis of modern and contemporary art, painted services, and traditional paintings. Anna is a 2009 graduate from the Art Conservation Department at Buffalo State College. Following her graduation, she was awarded the William R. Leisher Fellowship in the Conservation of Modern and Contemporary Paintings at the National Gallery of Art. She is also a professional associate of the American Institute for the Conservation of Historic and Artistic Works. Anna has recently held contracts at the National Gallery of Art, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum, and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. In this episode, we discuss Anna's educational background, contract work with various East Coast museums, her relocation to the Pittsburgh area, and how she balances her business with her work at the Carnegie Museum and family life. And now here's my interview with Anna Alba. First of all, welcome to The Private Project, and thank you so much for joining me. My first question is, how did you discover the field of conservation? I was an undergrad and uh, was an art history major and wanted to do something more hands-on because I didn't really see myself teaching art history, an art history survey somewhere, and wanted something a bit more hands-on. There was an article in the local paper about an art conservator who moved to the Orlando area and I emailed him, or no, I called him. We had a phone conversation and he told me not to get into conservation, that it was an awful field. (laughs) And so I did. (laughs) And then I contacted another local. I looked up the prerequisites for the different programs, and there weren't a whole lot of uh, people in private practice in Florida at the time. So I reached out to uh, two of them, and one of them, Claudia Deschoux, gave me an internship. So... I was lucky to find pre-program experience in the state that I was in. And that's where it took off. So you got your first pre-program internship with a call interview. Can you go into more detail about your pre-program experience? It was in objects and it was out of her house. So I saw the way that she split up her house and saw what kind of space you needed and what kind of clients she worked with and the things she did for cities in Florida. So she did a lot of public art as well. So I got to see different realms that you could work in. So she brought me to museums. We traveled around with art that she had to transport herself and then working within her space. So I think it was a really all-inclusive experience and she was very thorough. So I was involved in all aspects, including documentation and report writing. And she got me involved right away with hands-on bench work, which was great. And she put a lot of trust in me and having not really worked with me before and me not really having any experience, but she gave me like little trials to do on things that either she owned or was a friend of the family or or whatever things that she felt comfortable with me working on and she also um got me internships working at a small museum in tampa doing a rehousing project just because there were limited hands in the area 
she knew of institutions with needs elsewhere. So I worked for a small institution doing rehousing, kind of solo, and also assisted with the selection committee for uh, the public art committee for the city of Tampa, just to be part of that process and to hear about all the applications. And so she tried to give me like a really well-rounded experience. So I, you know, I was very thankful for that. So your first experience was in private practice. At that time, were you thinking this might be something that you were interested in or because it was your first experience, maybe you weren't thinking that far ahead yet? Similar to a lot of young conservators, I had the dream of working in an institution, wanted to work with other people. I I felt like having a private practice was a great deal of stress and she has an enormous amount of responsibility. Just creating the work environment, I saw as a big hurdle. And so when I went into school, I, I, of course, I had the thought that I would want to do institutional work just based on my experiences working with her. Though she had set up a great private practice, it's just the amount of work that that takes was pretty intimidating. But even before my fellowship, I started doing contract work for government institutions and got a few calls here and there to do private work. So it was easy to fit things in on the side. It's a slow process, but it just kind of worked out for me this way. And you briefly mentioned school. Can you talk about which graduate school you went to and what that experience was like? I went to Buffalo State College. I'm a 2009 graduate, and I did start out thinking I would be an objects conservator and switched my focus after the first summer and got a summer internship in paintings conservation. I thought school was amazing. I just, you know, I had no plan B. The fact that I got into a program was just, for me, remarkable. And then to be surrounded by 10 of the most fascinating people I had ever met and to hang out with them every day. I mean, it was just, it was like, it was like heaven for me. I, I just loved every, every minute of it. We're still very close. When I do lecture in private practice, I, I tell the students to like, look around. These are the, the 10 most important people in your life and, and will be, you know, if you maintain relationships and it's such a close community that they've been a, a source of strength and professional resource for many years. It's so important. Your first summer internship was in paintings. Where did you have that internship? And then where did you do your third year fellowship? I was an intern at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And they had me working on older 19th century paintings, landscapes, portraiture, in addition to modern pieces like a soloit. So it's a really good broad look at what goes on in a museum, do condition checks, dusting, be involved in the day-to-day. It's a really good internship. And then for my third year internship, I was at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden doing primarily post-war paintings and starting a survey for them for a very large collection move. So a survey with triage is like the perfect third year internship because you look at literally hundreds of things and you have to decide not in a hurried way but in a practical way how to stabilize things that have been in storage and show instability and make judgment calls about how they should be moved if they're going to be moved and that led to a year's contract to finish the survey and work on uh, physically work on the collection. 
So you had your third year internship at the Hirshhorn, and then afterwards, the year after you graduated, you were doing contract work with them as well. Is that correct? Yes. Did you have other contracts or any other side work that you did while you were on contract? Not at that time. I was still very new to the DC area, didn't have equipment or a space to do private work, and I didn't really have the connections there to really facilitate that or to make it happen. It happened, but just not right right then. So how did you make that transition from the contract work to taking other side work and kind of getting a space for yourself and building a setup? It was a process. So that contract, I didn't anticipate staying as a contractor. And I did get a three-year fellowship at the National Gallery. At that time, I did take private practice. And it was people that called the museum or friends of friends of people who worked in the museum. We weren't advertising ourselves as for high conservators and occasionally I'd help out my supervisors on their private practice projects that they had on the side so it was common for conservators working in these museums to have side projects especially if their focus is something very specific and so I was pulled into those projects it just it's, it's a small trickle really and then taking very small things that I was comfortable with that needed minimal amount of work I wasn't set up to do, you know, anything with solvents quite yet. So it was basically taking on what I physically could and safely could, which was quite limited. And I wasn't even thinking about going into private practice when that fellowship ended. So I moved to New York City to work for more private practices. And it wasn't until we were in New York, it was a decision that my husband and I made that we didn't want to stay there. So where else are we going to go? Didn't really want to move back to DC. There weren't many positions opening up. So that time I moved to Pittsburgh, just made the leap uh, with no contacts at all, having to seek out a space, form a client list, reach out to people. So it's kind of a slow trickle into a birth by fire experience. (laughs) And how did you pick Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to relocate? I am from here originally. I was born here. And when I was in school in Buffalo, my brother was working on his PhD here. So I would drive down. It's only a short three and a half hours. So I would come down on the weekends and re kind of explore the city as an adult, which I hadn't done before since I was a child and just loved it. Just affordable, love the landscape, love the size of the city and you know how many things there are to do here and love how accessible everything is. And the fact that my family was all kind of moving back. Like my parents moved back. My brother was here. It wasn't too far from my husband's family. It just kind of like had it all. It was a good place for a startup for me. Sounds perfect. Can you describe your birth by fire, as you called it? How were you able to find a space? Can you talk about kind of building your setup in Pittsburgh? It was pretty stressful because I knew that I didn't want to work out of my apartment. We were renting. There wasn't enough space for a business. I didn't want to have clients coming in and out. So I tried to find at least a space where I could start to put stuff. And it ended up being like an artist type studio, but I wanted my own door. And so I found a, a company who had remade a storage facility into an artist's studio space. And each unit had a door with a lock, which I really wanted. But the units were open at the top. And so there were shared noises and, you know, smells and 
I wasn't 100% comfortable there. So I, all the time I was trying to look for something else. And I did take on a few projects while I was in the space and it was, it was much too small. It was really just a place to start putting stuff without any work to fill it. And luckily found a warehouse space in the city that was just bare bones minimum, but it was its own unit part of a larger community being developed so it was it's a building full of other small businesses and professionals kind of an allied fields like there are furniture makers wood make woodworkers metalsmiths ceramicists so more serious artists and it was a better fit and found somebody to share my space with which made it a bit easier and we really were able to make it our own. Like we really had full use of the space. Like we polished the floor, we coated them, we repainted and cleaned all the walls. We had a nice double door, access to a freight elevator, which was very important. Use of a spray booth, another unit or a garage. So it just kind of had it all. So we're very lucky we found it. <laughs> That's that sounds amazing. For those who are maybe a little bit unfamiliar with the work that a paintings conservator does, can you talk about the features that you just mentioned in the space and how that is so beneficial for the type of work that you do? Mm-hmm. I always thought the saying is like, if you build it, they will come. And so in order to take big projects like oversized paintings, large stretched works or rolled canvases, you need to get them to be able to get them physically in your space. And you have to think Think about the layout of the hallways like can things make sharp turns like if they're on a forklift or you know if they're being shuttled by several people like how can things physically make it into your space and the freight elevator was because we're on the fourth floor it's just pretty essential for us to fit anything you know larger than 80 inches my other building there were there were stairs so the clients would have to like carry their paintings up a flight of a short flight of stairs but the hallways were very narrow like you couldn't fit any sort of like large trolley through if you needed that plus the spray booth you know i was thinking about safety right away so it is very well ventilated and we are making more capital improvements but just to keep your solvent work away from your space and away from the air that you breathe you need a spray booth or you need a place to varnish I need to think about, you know, how your workflow accommodates this. Like if you need to varnish in the middle of the day, you can't have a freshly varnished painting in your space with all the solvents off-gassing. And I don't want to wear a respirator all day. So luckily there's a spray booth in the building. It's in another unit, but they're very kind to let us use it. Also, there's a lot of work that happens in the lower levels. There are very open spaces. So I have varnished in other open spaces when I needed to. Otherwise, I do keep my space pretty well ventilated. Um, But just trying to be mindful of the other tenants. But luckily we have these things in our space that makes it much easier. How did you build client relationships in Pittsburgh? And were there any relationships that you utilized in the areas that you worked previously, like Washington, D.C. or New York to get some more work? How did you kind of build up your client list? Here, I did actually reach out to a lot of the other conservators. I said, I'm here. 
I would like to have good relationships with you, work with you if I can. And a few of them were really welcoming. And I even ended up sharing my space with another painting conservator because we saw it as a, a mutually beneficial arrangement. Like we would both share the space. For the first couple of years, I wasn't in there much at all. I was traveling out of state for various contracts. And my contract work was actually my bread and butter for many years. But it involved staying in other cities for an extended period of time. It was really wonderful. And I didn't mind traveling. But now I do mind traveling. <laughs> so, But it's all kind of worked out. Rika is now working at the Warhol full time. And she uses the studio for her side projects. And I'm working at the Carnegie part-time, and I use the studio primarily for private work that's built up because Rika is no longer taking projects. Well, not as many, but business has really taken off to the point where I don't feel like I need to travel anymore, nor that I really want to because we have the son. He's three now, and it's been pretty challenging shuttling him around and, and scheduling and and availability so things have got shaken up this past year and a half but I don't know just we've been lucky a lot of it is just for me pure luck and Pittsburgh is so small I mean it's small in terms of its its art market and the people that you meet here all seem to know each other so I felt like with a few key people a few key introductions it's the kind of place where it was the right place at the right time. And there's a lot of young people moving in with their own, you know, startup collections and a lot of work at the museum. And it's been a work in progress, but we've been pretty blessed. Can you talk a little bit about the contracts that you got after your fellowship when you were working in the private studio? I contracted at the National Gallery of Art for on and off for about four three or four years. Um, so I was working on very specific paintings because I was coming in from out of state. I would break it up. So I might travel for the National Gallery one to two weeks a month. So I would go there, stay a week, and then come back. And it offered all the flexibility I wanted. They were pretty flexible with when I could come down. I could split up the week if I even wanted. I could stay two weeks and then take another week off. I feel like it was it was great for my situation. And I really liked the work that I was doing there. Very challenging projects. Were these contracts available because there was, you know, work that they needed an extra set of hands on, or there was an exhibition coming up where they just needed help getting some sort of project work done? Like what was the project work like? It was a mix because they were short staffed in terms of modern contemporary conservator. So I worked on a lot of unconventional materials for the National Gallery and really challenging pieces in terms of their sensitivities to treatment or uh, vulnerabilities to just damage because their surfaces are so fragile. Or like recent acquisitions that have come in that have just been overhandled or treated in an inappropriate way by maintenance guy or something. Like this metallic painting came in. It was like a dispersed in a resin. And um, the maintenance guy had overpainted it with acrylic, but even removing the acrylic disturbed the mica underneath. 
in painting that damage was particularly challenging because you have to find the right mica pigments but you also because they're suspended in a particular way the iridescence doesn't quite match and you have to think about reversibility if i put this on this synthetic resin say my my painting doesn't hold up for whatever reason how is somebody else going to take it off in painting another painting that had been really badly damaged uh, with pure neon colors just taking frequent breaks so that your eyes you don't burn like holes in your eyes <laughs> the colors were so overwhelming uh we did a couple light bleachings on paintings that were on painted on unprimed canvases where the canvases were discolored so i helped out with a few of those yeah just a fair amount of really challenging things that other people or other staff members might just not have had the time to I was treating recent acquisitions, things that came from the Corcoran when they acquired many pieces from the Corcoran. There was a survey done. And then I also contracted for very specific projects, like an opening for Smithsonian American Art Museum. And I also contracted on and off for the Hirschhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden doing work on their modern contemporary paintings when they were also lacking conservators and, and had a heavy exhibition schedule. So it was a lot of things for exhibitions that arrive, unstable conditions and condition checks for things coming and going. I did a lot of that. Preparing things for loan that maybe hadn't been looked at in 15 years or something like that. It's all kinds of stuff. It was exhausting, but we hadn't had our son yet. Work here hadn't picked up. I had family in the D.C. area that I could call on and friends that I could stay with. But, you know, it was couch surfing and it was, you know, staying in somebody's apartment for an extended period of time. And you just didn't want to overstay your welcome. And the driving, I mean, I drove to D.C. and back 75 times in those uh, few years and the mileage on your car, driving in the snow, and, you know, it's it was a lot. I'd like to now go to, so you had some contracts at the National Gallery in the Hirshhorn, and then can you talk about your transition more to being based in Pittsburgh and sort of moving away from contract work? I got pregnant, and I couldn't really travel for health reasons so much. Like, I actually had to turn down contracts and stop a contract midway because I was physically unable to finish them. So that wasn't so great. But I knew that I would have to slow things down in that regard. But when Leo was five months is when I had planned on kind of amping business back up. That's when COVID hit. So it wasn't a great time for the transition to happen. It coincided with, you know, me coming out of maternity leave, me ending out-of-state contracts, and then worldwide pandemic for several years. So we're coming out of that super strong, though. And I did take unemployment for about six months at the beginning. And that was great. It was with my son and didn't have any sort of childcare for him. So I was thankful for unemployment funds. But people started emailing and calling. It was crazy. It was like people got bored and started looking at what was on their walls or like were thinking, wow, now's the time to do this, you know, portrait of grandma or they're moving. I don't know. It's just like a, a deluge of work. And I had a sense that other conservators were experiencing this as well. I don't know. I haven't talked to a ton of other private practice conservators and wasn't able to go to AIC, but I got a sense that 
work kind of picked up for everybody. And maybe it was because some people were becoming unavailable for work. I'm not sure. People were becoming uneasy about moving. So it was, it was like, oh, hello, we're doing this now. We're back on. So I'm still playing catch up. Like I have months of work. It's crazy. That sounds so awesome. I mean, obviously the beginning was <laughs> yeah. stressful, but but the fact that you were able to have people coming to you during this time. Mm-hmm. My next question is about expansion. Have you been able to expand your business since opening? And can you describe that in terms of personnel, equipment, tools, the amount of projects or the type of projects that you would take on in your space, any updates to the space itself? Some things have happened by coincidence like Artex closing and they have two hot tables like you have to buy one like you have to get it to Pittsburgh like there's just no other option so yes you're going to invest in this hot table right now uh, Rika had a small one so but her hot table was pre- it's pretty limited in size but I was happy to have access to it at the beginning you know that's another reason why to make friends with other local conservators is to use maybe equipment that you you don't have quite yet and she was more than willing to share her hot table In terms of personnel, I do get asked if I would take interns or hire part-time. I've hired for specific jobs. So I've found a couple people that I would trust in terms of art handling and doing technician type work, but not somebody full-time solely for the fact that I'm not there full-time. Like I can't really function as a a supervisor if I'm still part-time and I'm, you know, part-time at the studio for a long time, but then now I'm part-time at the museum. So my time is too fractured to be able to take on anyone full-time. And I mean, I haven't really looked for full-time help in Pittsburgh, but I think it would be hard here to find somebody that I would be comfortable leaving in the studio without me, Um, just based on the fact that in all likelihood, they probably have never done anything like this before, and it would be training somebody. So the learning curve would be much greater here for somebody getting hired into the studio. We do a lot of mural works. Um, uh, Rika, she's had a very good relationship with a nonprofit who helps preserve murals in a church here, murals of Max Ivanka. And uh, we get going on that project whenever there's funding. Because of people's unavailabilities, we've had to hire technicians for that. So our hires have been very project specific. No, that makes a lot of sense. And especially if, say, you have someone who's had maybe museum experience, the environment of a private practice studio versus a museum studio is a little bit different as well. So even if a person maybe has experience, like you said, there is some training time that it takes to kind of settle into the private environment too. How do you manage your time between the Carnegie Museum, your private practice, and also family time and you time? (laughs) <laughs> if that exists. Oh my God. I'm trying to work on that. It's It's been a personal struggle for me because I tend to work well in very uh, regimented, planned out uh, environments. So right now the Carnegie is like two days a week and I'm like, it's only going to be these two days so that I can be sure that if anything comes, I know that I have the other days kind of open. But Leo isn't in preschool yet either. So if he's sick, like I have to pull him out of his little program that he's in now, or he can't go to the babysitter. So sometimes I'm, you know, forced to give up my day that I had planned to to work a full day. It's it's just, it's everybody's different. Everybody's situation is totally different. My studio is luckily 12, 15 minutes away from here. 
So I can maybe take a break in the afternoon and go there for a half day, but I find it really hard to get a task going if I only have two hours. Like it's impossible. I need a solid day or like a solid five hour stretch to do work. Otherwise, it's kind of a waste of time to get out there. I'm still working on that kind of work-life balance, but with the contract, I feel like maybe you can plan that a bit better. And because you know that you have two days and then you know you bill for a certain amount of time, like it just, it gives you like a sense of security. Like I'll know I get to bill at the end of the month. I know I'm going to have this paycheck. I don't know. I thought maybe I would start not accepting so much private work or just putting it off because the murals will start up again in the summer. So that's another full day commitment for the rest of the week where I can't get in the studio it's thinking ahead. It's really being good multitasker, thinking about what you have coming up, what's in the pipeline. Are you able to do this? Are you able to spend time with your family? <laughs> it's, it's a little bit nuts right now, but um, I'm, I'm working on it. Silver lining is it does sound nice. If you have your own business, you could also be flexible and kind of customize it. Like you were saying, if you have a summer where you want to work on one project, you can kind of cut down on the amount that you have that you dedicate to your private studio. You can fluctuate between museum work, studio work. So I think that is really a really neat option. I know it sounds very, it's probably very stressful, but I, I like the idea of sort of a flexible business model that you can adjust depending on what else is going on in your life. I think that's really interesting. I have really liked it, but I have also thought that you really needed to be good at prioritizing. And at this point, I have to say no to people and I've never had to do that before. And I don't like to do that. Um, and I think you find yourself thinking, well, you know, if I came in, you know, part of this Sunday, I could finish this one project and then, then I could t say yes to this other person and then put them in on my in between this other project. And then it becomes, frankly, unhealthy. You kind of have to like know your inclinations and give yourself time. And it's hard because you're just starting out. You don't want to say no to anyone. And you're establishing yourself. But yeah, you do have to look out. You have to pay attention to how much is going where. Absolutely. I think setting boundaries is so, so important. Even as a pre-programmed person, I've just recently started to set some boundaries and it's been very radical, very positive change in kind of making weekend sacred. Obviously that's not always possible, but that really resonates with me, like trying to make, you know, have some time for you or your family and sort of make this lifestyle sustainable, even when the work that we do is so exciting and maybe you want to go in on a Sunday afternoon, you know, and finish a project, but I think boundaries are so, so, so important. Is there anything you wish you had known before starting your business? Business, how to run a business <laughs> would have been great. Um, I did go, I did take some like really startup, like really basic classes from the Small Business Association, just in terms of like setting up. But there are things that I still have questions about, like, you know, how to go about getting, state contracts like I've never done anything for the state before just having a better sense of the proper avenues of getting bigger projects but it's tricky because with bigger things come bigger responsibilities and you need more people and you need to be set up to travel so I don't know that's a really hard question I feel like there's a lot of things that I wasn't primed to do like client interactions like I've had supervisors that were really good at talking to people and really good at having them understand 
what the issues were or that they would talk people down from like, you know, people were really, really concerned, like it was a disaster situation and just to like talk somebody down from there. Just like, it's going to be okay. Uh, some people are just more skilled at that than others. But these are all skills that I think just come with experience. So it's hard to, it's hard to say what I would have asked about if I were just starting out. It's just, there's just so, so much. Yeah. And I think there's so many unforeseen skills that maybe you didn't realize would be part of your career, but become so important. Like you said, client interactions. I've been also really interested in, in the idea of negotiation. Like how do you negotiate with a client who maybe has different treatment goals than you do or has different priorities for an object? Um, I think that's very interesting. And yeah, there's there are so many kind of hidden skills that you don't realize would be applicable until you start your own business. Absolutely. My last question is, do you have any advice for any pre-program or graduate students who are thinking about starting their own business? I would just say it's a process. If you're in an internship and fellowship, you can take on side projects. It might give you like a taste for it. If you're nervous, you know, formulate a workflow for yourself and have templates for your whatever work that you might do. Come up with a way to, to organize the generated reports. Like, how would you organize that for yourself? It just, it's a good place to start. Even with only a few little projects, you could formulate a workflow just organization-wise. Like, what do your receipts look like? What does your letterhead look like or your business card? Just little things that if you ever decided to make the jump would just make it that much easier. Like, you have a business card you can start passing it out, you know, it's just good to have those things or an online portfolio just to start showcasing yourself that could make into something bigger if you wanted to. I think that's excellent advice. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the podcast, please visit theprivateproject.com. On the website, you can view a complete episode list, submit your feedback, and donate to support the project. All donations go directly to the interviewees, who take time out of their busy schedules to talk to me. This also incentivizes those not in my network to be interviewed and allows me to bring more diverse content to you. Thank you for your support.